Thanks, Pastor Nathan. Morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. As uh, Pastor Nathan mentioned, my name is Jordan. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as the youth director here at Harvest and am grateful to be sharing this series that we're in leading up to Christmas called All This Took Place, in which we're looking to the Gospel of Matthew to prophecies made about Jesus hundreds of years before he came and to see the wonder of that as we come into this Christmas season, for our, our hearts to explode with love for and appreciation for Jesus and the way in which he came and the wonderful realities of his coming for us, for our minds to explode as we consider the sovereignty of God in all of these things. And that's what brings us to Matthew chapter 2 and the second message in the series called, Out of Egypt I Called My Son. Now, one of the questions that we hear most often in our lives is, how are you? How are you? How are you doing? It's, of course, the, the customary greeting. Whenever you welcome somebody into your home, as they hang their coats up on the hook, make their way into your living room, so, so how are you? It's what you ask that person as, they, uh, as you run into them at the, in, the, in the aisle at the grocery store after not seeing them for a long time. Oh, it's so great to see you again. I haven't seen you in forever. How, how you been? It's, it's how you begin a phone call conversation as you dial that friend or family member. How are you? Perhaps even you heard that question as you made your way in to worship this morning. But of course, when we hear that question, we have a decision to make. And that decision is, of course, how will you respond? Now, a number of things factor into your response to that question, mainly how you're feeling that day, of course, how work's been, how obedient your kids have been that week, uh, how you're feeling physically, not to mention the, the greatest thing that would factor in, whether or not you even want to have a conversation with the person who's asking you, uh, to which all of the introverts would say decidedly, no, of course not, right? It, sorry about that, introverts. I recognize how much of a risk it was to ask you to speak out loud at church. I, that's on me. Whenever we're presented with, with that question, or really any number of, of questions or situations that we may find ourselves in on any given day or any given week, we must, must decide how will we respond. When that person cuts you off on the 400, how are you going to respond? It might be decided whether or not the kids are in the car. If you get that, that news that you weren't expecting, how will you respond? You see that post online that you don't like, how are you going to respond? Well, it's the same question that three sets of characters had to ask themselves as Jesus arrived into their lives. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 2, three characters, three different responses, and yet all of which were ordained by God to accomplish his good purpose. Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 says that, these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This morning, we'll look at what that verse means. We'll look at the way that these three sets of characters responded to Jesus, and we'll ask ourselves the question, how will I respond to Jesus' arrival? Let's turn our attention to the text now, Matthew chapter 2. We'll look at the first 18 verses together. Follow along with me as I read. These are God's words to us this morning. 
Matthew records, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea the, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth found in it and the reality that from it we can know you. We thank you that it is living and active and that it works and moves in our hearts as you use it to bring about the truths to bear in our lives. And so, Lord, as it was for the two men who walked with you, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts burned within them as you read the scriptures, would you cause our hearts to burn within us this morning? Would these truths truly impact and change who we are? So encourage us, Father, I pray. Challenge us by your word and teach us for your glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the question before us this morning, of course, how will I respond to Jesus? Let's look at the first group of people that we see in our text. It's the wise men, and they worshipped him. So the question is, will you? Now let's start by, by getting to know uh, this, these wise men uh, before we unpack their response to Jesus. Let's start with the things that we don't know about the wise men. First, we don't know, contrary to Christmas tradition, how many there actually were. There very well could have been three. There also very well could have been 20. The scriptures record for us that they gave three gifts to Jesus, but that does not mean that there were three men. 
Again, contrary to Christmas tradition, we don't know their names. Uh, throughout history, their name, they've been given names. We don't know that. Scriptures don't record that for us. And we don't actually know their specific role. It's suspected that they could have done any number of things, but they were not kings themselves, we know for sure, but most likely advisors to kings. And with all the, the power and authority that came with that. So that's what we don't know. How about, how about the things that we do know? Now, if you've been around Harvest any length of time, you know this was coming. Uh, the, rise, the wise men did not arrive at the manger scene. In fact, they arrived afterwards. Verse 1 records that for us. They arrived after Jesus was born. It could have been a few weeks, could have been a few months, could have been up to two years after Jesus was born. Verse 11 even records that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had found more comfortable lodging by that time. They were staying in a house. And so, go ahead and mark off wise men arrival date mentioned on your harvest Christmas bingo card. Okay, like I said, you knew that was coming. And uh, let me just say, if your nativity scene features wise men at the manger, you're just playing fast and loose with historical accuracy, and I'll leave that with you, okay? Second thing, second thing we know about these wise men, they were prominent figures in their land. They had obvious power and influence. As I mentioned already, it, it was, it was um, thought it was believed that they were advisors to king, but it, kings, but it went even further than that to say that they potentially even were king makers, that a king was not able to take the throne unless this group gave their okay. They were well-respected in both religion and politics in their land, wherever it was they came from. And on that, here's the third thing we know about them. It's recorded in verse one, that they were pagans from the East, most likely from Persia or Babylon. Babylon seems like the most likely option though, given the large Jewish remnant that was there, which would have allowed for them to know the prophecy of the coming of the King of the Jews and the star, which would signal his arrival which is what brought them to Jerusalem, as we see in verse 2, to search for this king of the Jews because they saw his star when it rose. A great deal of speculation also surrounds this star. Initially, of course, the star rises. God, God sovereignly ordained that this celestial symbol would rise in the sky. And these wise men being astute in both astrology and astronomy, knowing the, the stars, knowing the planets and how they move and what that means for people, they would have seen this. They notice it and God uses it sovereignly to announce the coming of his son. And all we can know for sure about this star is that it was supernatural. Stars don't move like this one did in verse 9. After it rises, the wise men come to Jerusalem, and then verse 9 records that this star literally guides the men, not just to Bethlehem, but to the place where Jesus was staying. Could have been a guiding angel. Could have been some specially created, sovereignly created a celestial phenomenon, but whatever it was, it was bright like a star. And these wise men notice that it's different. And it's obvious for us that they were familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so upon seeing this star, perhaps Isaiah chapter 60 came to their mind. It seems almost 
certain that Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 came to their mind. That, of course, says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That would have tipped them off that something was happening in Judea. A scepter means a king who would rule and deliver the people of God. And that king has risen out of Israel, and so they come, verse 2, to worship that king. Now, the irony, of course, is that these magi, these pagan wise men, come to worship the king of the Jews, the Messiah, whom the Jews had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And it's amazing to think about that the prophecy that, that, that's made by Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, Balaam was a pagan magician that God used to prophesy the coming of his son. And then here in Matthew chapter two, God uses pagan magi to announce his arrival. In verse 11, we see that they fell down and worshiped him. And they opened up their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts of great value. Because while the wise men don't fully understand all that's going on, they respond in the right way. I mean, these men could not have known the fullness of the implications of who Jesus is, of his being God, the son in the flesh, but their unknowing does not deter them from responding correctly. You see, we, we have this, this idea, this perspective today that we need to know everything about everything. And unless I know everything about Jesus and everything that there is to know about his coming and everything that there is to know about what's going to happen when he comes back the second time, I can't fully believe him. This desire to know everything hinders our walk with Jesus. Hinders some from even coming to him. Listen, you don't need to know everything about Jesus to know that he is the Savior and obey him. You don't need to know everything about Jesus to see who he is and what he's done. Jesus said it simply in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. God deals with our hearts and knows when someone seeks him genuinely. Even if it's misguided at first. These wise men, they knocked on the wrong door initially. They sought Jesus in Jerusalem. That's not where he was. Any who seek him genuinely, he will reveal himself in his way and in his time. Here the Magi search in the wrong direction, but God revealed to them the right direction. Please don't hear me saying that, that, we, need, that we can remain ignorant. We should pursue Jesus with all that we are. We should seek him in his word most certainly. We can do so trusting that our God is sovereignly orchestrating these things for his plans and purposes, for his good ways, in the same way that he did to reveal the wonder of the king who had come to these wise men.
Why, why else would these men of, of such high position and power in their land come to seek a king from, in, in Jerusalem? Why would they go to worship a child from Bethlehem? To bestow upon him gifts of great value. fact is, these magi coming to worship Jesus in the way that they did reveals to us, again, one of the wonderful purposes for which God sent his son. And that is, people from all across the world can worship him. That the world might know him and see him for who he is and worship him. God invites us to see the king like the Magi did. To see his son and to joyfully worship him. To be willing to lay our lives down in every part with all that we have and all that we are. To open up our own treasures of the gifts and, and, and the passions that the Lord has given to us and to lay them at his feet to be used by him in whatever way he sees fit for his glory. Because it's not just enough that you would know formally who this Jesus is. I mean, after all, the religious leaders knew the scriptures better than the Magi did. We'll talk about that more in a moment. that you would see him for who he is in his sovereignty and worship him. In his commentary, David Platt wrote, the God who 2,000 years ago sovereignly arranged the stars in the sky, the God who sovereignly directed these magi to the Messiah is the God who has sovereignly arranged your life and every detail in it. Your job your school, your family, your background, and your relationships. Your being here is no mistake. Your being here is not random. The Magi going to worship Jesus in Bethlehem was not random. Everything about you, the good and the easy, the hard and the not so good, God has used to bring you to this place to ask you the question, will you see Jesus like these wise men did and worship him? To joyfully sing his praises, which is an expression of our worship, of course. But more than that, surrender all that you are to him, to be used by him, to exalt him to bring others to the reality of the gospel that he came to proclaim in himself. A response should be what, what, what Paul unpacks for us in Philippians chapter two, chapter 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christian, that's our job. That's our goal. If we see Jesus for who he is and have faith in him, are saved by him, we bow the knee before him, confess that he is Lord, and do all to the glory of God the Father. 
Now notice how the wise men ask about this one that they search for. Look back again at verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Notice that they don't say, where is he who will become the king of the Jews? But where is he who is king from birth? Jesus's kingship, his, his being born into the line and promise of David is not something that he would grow into. He had it from birth. He had it in his death. He was crucified. The title that hung over him recorded for us in Matthew 27, 37 was, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, and he has it now. He was crucified as he was buried, and as he rose to new life on the third day, he appeared to many and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God the Father, where he is now ruling and reigning. Jesus is King. And if he's your king, then this is your purpose to live and to die for. To praise the son of God, the king of kings and Lord of lords who has come for all the peoples of the world who would come to him in all that you are and all that you do and in all that you have to offer. Bow before him. Open your treasures to give to him in worship. Because the wise men worshipped him. So will you. But of course, not everyone was as excited at, at Jesus' coming as the wise men were. See this secondly, Herod was threatened by him. Are you? So as we said already, the wise men most naturally traveled to the capital city, to Jerusalem, because that's where you would expect a king to be born, of course. But their arrival and their question throws the existing king and the entire city into an uproar. Look back at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now we're introduced to Herod here, Herod the Great, as he's often referred to as. He was established as the king of the Jews, given authority by Roman authorities at this time, and he was a cruel and paranoid ruler. So, so focused on his own authority, so consumed with his own control. So, so laser focused on establishing his kingly line that would reign for generations that he squashed any threat to any of that. Any who would rise up against, against him, whether in reality or, or potentially, he would have them killed, which included, by the way, his favorite wife and two of his sons. Some of you think that your Christmas family gatherings are touchy. Could you imagine Christmas at the Herod household? So a band of high-ranking officials making their way into his city, proclaiming the arrival of the true king of the Jews, the Messiah, would have sent him into a frenzy. And of course, his, his reputation was well known. And so for the city to be troubled with him, it was not out of sympathy for him. It was not even feeling sorry that he would be replaced, but the people knew that this 
was going to be cause for more cruelty and craziness on behalf of Herod. So Herod calls together the experts on all this, the priests and the scribes, and and begins the process of of squashing this latest threat. The religious leaders unpack for Herod the the prophecy, what the scriptures say in verses 5 and 6 of Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and the prophecy of Jesus being born in the humble town of Bethlehem. And truly so much more we could say about that prophecy. I'd encourage you to read about it sometime this week. But what I want you to see from these verses is the indifference of the religious leaders toward Jesus. What I want you to see is the fact that that these people that God has established to be the authority over the worship of him and the application of the scriptures have become so apathetic in their living for the Lord that when they're confronted with this potential arrival of the Messiah, At best, they think it's another false alarm. At worst, they're so consumed with their own prideful self-preservation that they turn a blind eye to the truth. The latter seems more likely, of course. Because we know that their neglect and indifference toward Jesus would lead to their outright opposition of him and to their eventual killing of him Because he threatened their status quo, like he does for Herod here in Matthew chapter 2. Please don't miss this. No amount of heartless, empty, religious observance will save you. These were the most religious people in Israel at the time. It is only if you see Jesus for who he is, seek after him with your whole heart, have faith in him and what he came to do, what he did and what he is doing for you, even right now that you will be transformed and saved. So if you're, if you're, if you're here thinking that, that just by virtue of your attending church or because you serve down in Harvest Kids, or because you give financially, if you think those things are going to save you, they won't. If you're here or you're watching online and you're apathetic to Jesus, you're just just sitting here for someone else, or you're too consumed with yourself and your own desires to give it up to Jesus, listen, you are in the same boat as these religious leaders. And make no mistake, apathy is opposition. They knew the facts and the scriptures better than anyone else. But they couldn't care less about what was happening in Bethlehem. They didn't even take the short trip just to even see for themselves maybe. Back to Herod now. He goes on in verse 7 to call the wise men to him and and to find out this second critical piece of information that he needs when the star appeared. So not only does he know where to look, but now he knows how old this child must be. And so he has all that he needs at this point to take care of this latest threat to his rule, but not wanting to draw any undue suspicion toward himself, he sends 
the wise men off. Verse 8, saying this, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. If you like making notes in your Bible, just go ahead and write lie right next to this, okay? Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wanted him dead. He's trying to manipulate and, and twist these magi to make his life easier. He tries to use them to get to this threat that he's trying to eliminate. But then God, of course, in his sovereignty, warns the magi of what was coming and, and they leave a different way. Which brings us to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Mentioned almost as an afterthought. We don't hear about this side of the nativity story often. You don't see this on Christmas cards. Referred to as the slaughter of the innocent. And it illustrates for us the reality of Herod's evil and cruelty and the level of threat that he felt toward this king of the Jews. Now, Bethlehem and area was not heavily populated at the time. And so it seems almost crass to say, but relatively speaking, this would not have been a very large number of boys. Yet the anguish and devastation of this verse is unimaginable. The mothers weeping for their sons. The families absolutely shattered. The generational anguish. The dashing of the security that came from having a son on the rocks for these families. It's horrific. It's hard even for us to consider. RVG Tasker writes that these children were the first casualties in the warfare inevitably to be waged between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God and his Christ. Make no mistake, Herod's, Herod's rage was against the Lord. He was fulfilling Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This act of, of Herod is an illustration of, of, the war, of the way the world, steeped in sin, responds to the Son of God sent to save it. Jesus presents a threat to the way this world wants to go as it is ruled by sin and Satan himself. And so people will do drastic things to eliminate the threat or the people who represent the threat. Charles Price writes, Charles Price writes, never is such intense antagonism amused 
as when an unyielding person is faced with the lordship of Jesus. That's why Christians are persecuted across the world today. That's why our Western world, which preaches equality and acceptance over everything, is equal and accepting to everything but Christian perspectives and values. Because the message of Jesus Christ is a threatening one. Evidenced by the fact that Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, if this world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Are you like Herod? Are you threatened by the arrival of Jesus? Are you harboring hatred and anger in your heart toward him, toward his church, toward his people? See, we can read this and think about this and believe that it only applies to non-believers, those who would scorn the church actively. Most certainly it does. But in reality, even us as Christians have a lot to identify with Herod about in our sinfulness. Because even Christians can feel threatened by what Jesus might be calling us to. Afraid of how he is going to invade our lives. Because we have our own plans. We have our own desires. We have our own dreams. We have our own little kingdoms that we want to protect with everything that we have. Our desires for what our home would look like. For what our kids might look like. For what our small group would look like. For what our church would look like. It keeps us holding on to our money too tightly. It has us responding angrily when things don't go our way. It has us playing the blame game. It has us manipulating other people to get our own way. Is that you? Christian? You threatened like Herod was? Each of us are actively now or were at one point enemies of God like Herod in need of salvation from ourselves and our sin, in need of the renewal that comes by the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us. Each of us are all too aware of the pain and suffering in our lives and in this world because of sin. Each of us are in need of something to bring an end to the sorrow in our lives and the lives of others. And this is why Jesus came. This is the work that he wants to do. Look down at verse 17. After this had happened, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The reference here is to Jeremiah chapter 31, specifically verse 15 here in our verse 18. It's, which, it's, it's where the prophet Jeremiah talks about the, the deep mourning that was caused by the exile of the Israelites to Babylon. The Babylonians took the people and at Ramah, they, they took them and divided them up, put them into caravans and shipped them off to different parts of the nation. They divided families. They ripped mothers from sons, daughters from fathers. Took them away from their home. It, it was a scene of unbelievable anguish. Families unsure if they would ever see one another again. A scene similar. The weeping and anguish that would have taken place over the children who would have died in Bethlehem. But as Matthew refers to Jeremiah, he's not simply referring to just this verse but the ones that would come after it. In which God talks about the fact that he will remember his people. In which God promises that he would be with them and he would establish a new covenant with them, a new way of relating to them that was prefiguring the coming of Jesus Christ. Because amidst the pain and sorrow of deep suffering, God is still working. Some of you needed to hear that this morning. Amidst the pain and sorrow of deep suffering, God is still working. The plans and purposes of man can never upset the plans and purposes of God. Psalm 2 verse 4 says, The Lord laughs at the plans of those who are against him. Because while the slaughter of the innocent was happening in Bethlehem, God was revealing his mercy and taking another step forward in his plan to bring about his son for the world. So see this finally. Mary and Joseph trusted him. Do you? Now, in saying that Mary and Joseph trusted Jesus, I mean that they trusted the plan that was playing out in his life. Because, of course, remember, like at best, Jesus was a toddler at this point in time. If he was in Awana, he'd be a puggle, right? So, like, Jesus wasn't, like, just unloading the full extent of the plan that was coming about at this point in time. But Mary and Joseph knew who he was. They had been told. Joseph was given the purpose for which Jesus came by the angel in chapter 1. So in that respect, they trusted him. In verse 13, an, an angel appears again to Joseph, giving him instructions to, in order to deliver the family from the evil act of Herod. And in doing so, he sends them to Egypt. Which Joseph does, of course, immediately. And again, this is no random thing. Verse 15 says that they remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What the Lord had predicted hundreds of years before it would take place. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which talked specifically about God's miraculous and, and merciful dealing with his people and delivering them out of slavery in Egypt toward the land that he promised. 
Egypt was, was once a land that was a, a, signal, a symbol of oppression and suffering for the people of Israel. But now this land is a safe haven for the one who would save God's people from the suffering of their sins. Because in the same way that God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt, God redeems people from their sins out of Egypt. After all, this was the purpose for Jesus' coming. Matthew 121, the angel said to Joseph, he would save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came with a plan. This plan God had put in place was done before the foundation of the world. Mary and Joseph trusted that and it was, as it was laid out before them, evidenced by the fact that Joseph obeys immediately. So will you trust in the plan that he's laid out before you? In our sin, we are enemies of our Savior. In our sin, we struggle and experience sorrow in this world. And, and listen, Jesus has come to deal with all of that. We are in need of an exodus in the same way the Israelites were in need of an exodus from slavery. We need it from our sin. Jesus makes a way for that new exodus. A new way to be delivered from sin and death. From sorrow and mourning. Not by anything that we can do. But by everything that he has done. See, the story of Christmas is, is not just about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's what can happen today. The story is not just about our characters here, it's about you and me. And how we will respond to Jesus today. The passage gives us examples of, of how we can do that. Will you see Jesus for who he is? Not necessarily, necessarily, not, not necessarily knowing everything. Not having the complete picture. Will you trust him for who he is as he's revealed to us in his word? Will you worship him with all that you are and have? Would you not be threatened by him like Herod was? Do you not neglect him like the religious leaders did? But would you willingly give yourself up to trust in him who has a plan to deliver you from your sin? The struggle with it. The effect of it. Through the fact that he came and he lived and he died and he rose again you and for me. By his grace and his goodness, he has redeemed us for his glory. So I ask you one final time, how will you respond to Jesus's arrival? Let me pray for us. Almighty God, there's not much else we could say in light of what your word declares to us, but thank you. Thank you for making a way through your son 
for your obedience, Jesus, for the plan of the Father, that we could know you, that we could be restored in relationship with you, so we could have the forgiveness of sins, so we could have the promise of life now and eternal life to come, so we can have the Holy Spirit to move and work in us, to bring the realities of our salvation to bear. And so in that, Father, I pray for any in the room who are threatened by you and unwilling to bow the knee. You are a God who works miracles, evidenced for us in the way that you fulfilled prophecies written hundreds of years before in the coming of your son. So you can work to soften the, soften the hardest of hearts. Spirit, I pray that you would be chipping away at those who have not yet bowed the knee. That they would see you for who you are. They would see that you have a way to deal with the sin in their life. There's a God-shaped void in their heart that only you can fill. And would they seek you, I pray. And for those here to whom that reality has come to pass already, we thank you and we rejoice coming of you, your son, and in the fulfilling of your plan. Grow us in love for you because of that. Grow us in trust in you to do the things you have called us to, so we may glorify yourself. Whatever may come in our lives, Lord, we trust you. We pray this in your powerful and precious name, Jesus.